who am I? It's a question that changes everything. And there's not many questions quite as significant as this one. Because the way we answer this question changes the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world around us, the priorities that we have, the way that we spend our time. When we truly answer the question, who am I? It sets us on a whole trajectory that our whole life is built around. And there's so many things for us to identify with, is there not? We can identify and find identity in our gifts, our talents, our thoughts, and our feelings, the societal norms around us, our societal status, our accomplishments, our culture, race, sex, addictions, struggles, mistakes. The past can largely define how we see ourselves. And we also know that identity is a hot-button topic in our culture. And the question of whether or not who I am is identified by the world around me, or something inside of myself, or something altogether different, is a big topic of discussion. But where does our identity truly come from? Who are we? What are the things that truly determine who we are? Well, this morning we have the opportunity to look at Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to be taking on a little bit of a journey. For Jesus and his disciples, this was about a three-day journey. And Peter and Jesus are going to have an incredible moment together. But the context as we start off is they're heading to this place called Caesarea Philippi and they, it's a three-day walk from where they are and we don't know what they talked about along the way. But today we've got about 30 minutes and I just want you to imagine, what if we had three days and we shared life together, we experienced the journey, we saw the hillsides, we walked into a new place and then ended up in this city called Caesarea Philippi, which I want to tell you a little bit about. Take a look at the screens. This is an artist's rendition of Caesarea Philippi in the first century. It was a Roman city that had grown a lot during the time, and there was a temple to Caesar, a temple to the Greek god Pan, which you see pictured right there in the middle. And this is what it looks like today. The city is pretty much gone. There's lots of ruins, but this grotto dedicated to Pan had this ginormous cave. We'll get to that a little bit later. And so if you visit Israel today, you can take the drive up to this area and still see the remains of what is left of the city. And Caesarea Philippi was an interesting choice for some of the reasons I just highlighted to you. Today it's called Banius, which comes from the word Pan or Ban, which is the god uh, to, of nature, the Greek god of nature. He's kind of this goat figure looking human type thing. And there was lots of pagan worship in this site. So for about 300 years at Jesus' time, they had been gathering to worship this god Pan and that cave that you saw was called the Cave of Pan. And that rock area was called the Rock of the Gods. 
Not only was it a place of Greek worship, it was a place of Roman worship. As you saw in the video too, there was a temple built to Caesar. Caesarea is named after Caesar. Philippi, just to distinguish it from the other Caesarea, that's the most Caesar thing ever, right? To name two cities after your title. Uh, Philippi being Herod the Great's son who kind of ran the city. And so that's the name Caesarea Philippi. So you have, you have Roman worship, you have Greek worship, but you also have this place that was littered with ancient temples of Syrian Baal worship. Archaeologists have identified over 14 of these ancient temples in that region. So you've got Roman, you've got Greek, you've got Syrian, but get this, this was also a very significant place in Judaism. One, because it was in the foothills of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon being a very significant place uh, in Judaism, having to do a little bit with connecting kind of this world and the heavens and the underworld. There's a stream that also comes out of the mountainside here where this cave is. It's one of the four streams that is the headwaters for the Jordan River, the most holy river in all of Judaism. Why do I mention all this? Because Jesus took a three-day trip so his disciples could be at the intersection of culture. At the intersection of the Greek culture, the Roman culture, Jewish culture, Syrian culture, all of culture was happening right here. And there were many just pagan worship uh, practices that happened there. They would actually take that cave of Pan and sacrifice goats into it. And if that sacrifice disappeared into the abyss and deep into that watery cave, then it was believed that that sacrifice was accepted. That cave was also believed to be a gateway to the underworld, Hades. More of that later. But it was in this setting that Peter encountered the question, who is Jesus? And I think this is so pertinent for us today because we're asked the same question against a backdrop of all sorts of things happening in our world. But amidst all that, who is Jesus? Let's pick up in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus asked his followers, who do others say the Son of Man is? The story shows up three times in the Gospels, but only in Matthew do you find that phrase, Son of Man. Son of man was a phrase used by Jesus to identify himself all throughout the book of Matthew. And probably we find it prominently in the book of Matthew is because Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. And son of man is a Jewish identification term. It shows up over a hundred times in the Bible, many times in the Old Testament, specifically in Ezekiel. Over and over in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is identified as the son of man. And it means exactly what it sounds like. It speaks to one's humanity. A son of man. Even in Ezekiel, it might be used to denote uh, maybe the context of simply a man. Or I'm just a son of man. 
It speaks to humanity. But Jesus has been using this to identify himself in a lot of ways to speak to his humanity, but also in the Old Testament. This phrase was used somewhat curiously in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, a prophetic book, it mentions this one who is like a son of man, but he's not just a son of man. He's a savior. He's a Messiah. He's one who will reign. So in our language today, Jesus is asking, who do the people say that I am? But in this way that carries a little more weight and a little more significance, maybe even a little more curiosity. And some say that maybe Jesus is like a resurrected John the Baptist who had been murdered earlier, which I find kind of curious because Jesus and him were related and they were alive at the same time, but I don't know. I've said crazier things, I guess. Maybe he's like Elijah or Jeremiah or just one of the prophets. So the question gets raised, is Jesus just human? Maybe better yet, is Jesus like one of the prophets? You see, up until this time, Jesus has been slowly revealing who he is. And to be honest, who Jesus was ticked off a lot of people. He'd been facing more opposition from religious and political leaders. And during this time, he did not make a lot of effort to set the record straight with them. But what he had been doing is turning to his disciples to help them more clearly understand his identity and his mission. Just earlier in Matthew 13, we learned that Jesus was a prophet, but rejected in his own hometown. But it went further than that. We learned in Matthew 14 that Jesus was the healer and supplier of the Israelites as he healed and fed the 5,000. We learned in Matthew 14, the passage that I preached on last time months ago about Peter, that Jesus was the one who could walk on the water and calm the seas and he was worthy of worship. We learn in Matthew 15 that Jesus is the true teacher and he points out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We learn that he's also the healer and supplier, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles in chapter 15 as a Canaanite woman comes to him and is freed from a demon. Jesus has been revealing who he is and unpacking this with his disciples. And so in this moment, he turns to them and says, but what about you? Read with me in verse 15. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? There's no sign of hesitation shown. It says that Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you think about this for just a second, others are saying, you know, there's this great man named Jesus. Others are saying, maybe there's this guy who's even a prophet named Jesus. And Peter, right off the bat, from all that he'd seen and experienced, answers deeply these words, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who has come to save the son, not of man, but the son of the living God. Jesus, you are not just a mere man, but you 
are divine. And for some, the sermon stops there, right? Let's all acknowledge who Jesus is and call it a good day. We could stop the sermon there. That would be a great sermon right there. But before we move on, I have to ask you, who do you say Jesus is? And for some of you, that is the question today. For some of you, you've been coming to church, whether in person or online, and have been wrestling with that question. And as you've gotten to know Jesus, just kind of like Peter went on this journey with Jesus, some things are becoming a little clearer. Maybe some things are a little foggy. Maybe the light bulb is going on. And maybe today would even be the day that you, like Peter, would say about Jesus, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if that's you today, you're invited to take that step. For others of us, the question of who Jesus is is one that we can say, yes, I agree with Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the question quickly becomes, is he Christ in your life today? Is he Christ in the big things and the small things? Is he truly Lord over all the stuff that you are experiencing and going through today? And I share with you just a personal, maybe funny, maybe a little awkward story that just happened to me in the last 24 hours. Maybe you can relate. You'd think when you're preaching on a Sunday morning, that might cause you some angst. That's not the angst that I was dealing with last night. For whatever reason, and I don't dream a whole lot, but in the middle of the night, I had some restless sleep because I was dreaming. <laughs> it's kind of funny to say. Um, I was dreaming that Neil Diamond wasn't able to perform in his concert and I was taking over for him. deep, I know, right? I don't remember the last time I had this many thoughts in the middle of the night. What songs am I going to sing? Is my voice strong enough? Am I prepared? Who's going to accompany me? Is there going to be a dress rehearsal or do I have to just get up on stage? All these thoughts are going through my mind and it's really funny because, yeah, now that I'm standing here, I'm not worried about the concert later today. But in that moment, while I'm sleeping, I had a lot of angst. And I thought about it for a second, and I realized, you know what? This has nothing to do with Neil Diamond. But my life has been busy lately. And I have been thinking about a lot of things, and there's been a lot of details in front of me. And I think this is maybe just a sign that I have been running too much on my own brain power. I've been running too much trying to figure it out myself to where my brain has gone crazy, and now it's worried about things like Neil Diamond concerts. Is Jesus the Christ of my mind? Is Jesus the Christ of my to-do list? Is Jesus the Christ and Lord of all the other things in my life? Because as we're going to see as we continue today, that question of who is Jesus lays the foundation for everything else. Because just as Simon identified who Jesus was, Jesus is now going to respond and speak to who Simon is. Who is Simon? Let's take a look at what Jesus says. Verse 17. 
And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. That's pretty cool. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind up on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. What does Jesus say about Peter? First he says, you're blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You catch the identity in that? Simon's his name. Bar-Jonah is son of Jonah. Man, isn't that a place where we get a lot of our identity from what family we come from? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father, my father's given you insight. You've seen it. He clearly sees Jesus for who he is revealed by God. And this is where he gets his nickname. Jesus turns to him and says, and I say to you, you are Peter, the rock. You are Peter, the rock, the one that Christ will build his church upon. Can you imagine those words being spoken to you? I mean, we can kind of imagine today because there's a wrestler named The Rock, but this is like not quite the context that we're talking about. Here is Peter, who we've seen is kind of all over the place. He's got a ton of passion, but he's a little bit of a loose cannon. And if you were to pick from the 12 who The Rock would be in the bunch, I don't think it would have been Peter, for me personally. But Jesus says to him, upon this profession... I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Think about the significance that's being spoken by Jesus into Peter's life right now. You are the rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And then this phrase, the gates of Hades will not stand against it. There's a lot of conversation about what exactly meant by that, that gates of Hades phrase. And there's a few possibilities, all of which are pretty spectacular. One, I like the picture that's been pointed out here, that gates are not attacking you. Gates are defensive. Gates are trying to hold back the enemy. And it's saying here that the gates of Hades won't stand against the church. It's not a picture of evil being on the tack. It's a picture of the church being on the offensive. And who wins? The church. What I find probably a little more probable in here is Jesus is alluding to what he's going to talk about later in this chapter. Hades was the place of the underworld, the place of death. Hades was the place that this cave in the town of Caesarea Philippi was apparently a portal to the underworld, to Hades. I think it's very probable when Jesus said the gates of Hades will not overpower it, he was alluding to his own death and resurrection. Jesus knew what was coming. He's going to talk to his disciples about that in a sec. We'll get to it soon. But he says, death 
Hades, that place of the underworld, burial, nah, that's not going to win either. And he's given the keys, keys to the uh, kingdom. He's given power. And you look at Jesus saying to Peter that you're blessed, you're significant, and you're powerful. And it's pretty incredible. But what about us? You might be here today saying, well, I haven't stood face to face with Jesus and been given a new nickname. That'd be pretty cool, but I haven't had that experience yet. Or I'm not aware of these sets of keys that I own now. But let's talk about who we are. Who am I? We talked about that question earlier. From the moment that you first trusted in Jesus. Now I need to say too, who you are is not, like we said earlier, we're not just talking about just your gifts and abilities. Some of you are creative. Some of you have artistic skill. Uh, some of that was displayed Friday night at the Poema Showcase that some of our students put on. Some of you will be at the Create event we're having next Sunday for creatives in the church that want to use their gifts, network, and volunteer. But that's not the kind of gifting we're talking about here. We're not the kind of identity we're talking about here. Look at what scripture says about who you were when you first trusted Jesus. John 1.12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. You're a child of God. Well, what comes with that? Galatians 4.7, you're no longer a slave to the law, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Child of God has access to the things of God, is an heir in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Do you friends walk freely today, knowing that you've been washed and clean? Look in that passage in 1 Corinthians. You know that it comes after a really gnarly list of sins? And it says that's what some of you once were, but that's not who you are anymore. You have a new identity in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. I'm not who I used to be. Ephesians 3.12, it says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. There's not a wall between us and God. We can approach him, we can go to him. You're going to see Peter doing that in a second, but maybe not with the results that we think. And in 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Do you know, friend, that if you're a child of God today, that he's taken away the timidity? He's given you a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline that we can live out you know, we, we put a few of those things up there on the screen. Um, you can actually go into your Burke Community Church app. We got a little blog post that has even more things. And maybe this week, if this thing is for you to dive into and just understand more of who you are in Jesus Christ, that article is there as a resource for you. Because this is what the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not. <laughs> It's not work hard, try hard, get better, and then receive your new identity. No, it's the opposite of that. It's 
When you give your life to Christ, you receive a completely new identity in him. And because of that new identity, you can then become, through his power, more of who he says you already are. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be set free. You will start on that new journey. And it starts with acknowledging and confessing, just like Peter did, who Jesus is. This whole concept is pretty profound because, I don't know, anyone else here aware that they have a sin issue? Anyone else struggle with that in your day-to-day life? We know that sin is bad. We know that sin disrupts us from God. We know that sin has consequences. But do you ever just think of your sin as a case of mistaken identity? You ever think that one of the reasons you may struggle with sin is you just don't really know who you are? The analogy was once made that all of us, because of our sin, it's like we're locked in a prison cell. We're slaves to sin. We're prisoners to sin. And when Jesus died for us, he tossed the key our way and said, you can receive this and you can be set free. And we receive the gift of freedom from Jesus Christ and we unlock that prison cell and the door flings wide open to a whole life of freedom that he's given us. And it's a freedom that was meant to set us free, not just a freedom to do whatever we want. We know that some of our decisions put us back in the jail cell. But this is what sin is like when you are identified with Jesus Christ. It's living in the jail cell with the door wide open. We don't get locked in that prison anymore. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. But friends, we all far too often choose to hang out in that prison cell and experience what we experienced before, our death, our imprisonment. A lot of the issues with sin is just summed up in that middle letter, I. And I'll be the first to admit that I gets in the way a whole lot. I get in the way a whole lot. I walk back into that prison cell. I eat out of the garbage. I go back to the old way of things. But God's been reminding me this week, and I hope he's doing the same for you this morning, of just realizing that's not who Jesus says you are. You know, we love Peter because he's a lot like us, right? And I've talked on Peter a few times and encourage you today again, um, the book that a lot of this series has been taken from is up on the screen. It's available in the nook. You can pick it up. Mostly like the author because he highlights Peter, but he also gets a lot of that part where it's like, man, we're a lot like him. And here Peter has had this incredible moment life-changing, literally has a new identity, a new name. He's identified who Jesus is. Jesus has spoken to who he is. And let me ask you this. Do you think Peter from here just goes and lives out in this new identity? He lives out in nothing but Christ-centered power. 
No. In fact, anyone know how long it takes Peter to kind of mess this up? Three verses. <laughs> Three verses. Peter's just had this pivotal moment. And now a new question about identity is popping up. Is Peter the rock or is Peter the stumbling block? Let's read in verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. That's not good news, right? Peter took Jesus aside, Jesus aside, and rebuked him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I don't think that's what Ephesians was talking about with boldness in approaching God. But Peter is adamant, no. Uh, you said I got these keys, I'm going to use them right now. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Oh, this is convicting. You see, Jesus has been showing his disciples who he is, and now he is showing his disciples what he must do. And just how the world around Jesus fought back and resisted Jesus when he showed them who he was. Even Jesus' own disciples are fighting back when he says what he must do because they don't understand. Peter boldly rebukes him and says, No, Lord, this isn't the plan. This can't be right. This can't be how it goes. This will never happen to you. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Satan, Satanas, a word that means adversary. There's so much imagery in this picturing right in here. He calls him a stumbling block. He says, you are in my way. I am tripping over you. Probably the phrase, honestly, I relate to most in here is the get behind me part because that's every shopping experience with my children. And I know it doesn't carry the weight of this, but for me, it's a perfect illustration because the whole time what I'm trying to tell them is, I know where we're going. And if you will just stay behind me and follow me, this is going to be a much better experience for everybody. When you run out in front of me, you run in front of other people. You get in front of the shopping cart and you can get hurt and I don't want that for you. When you run out in front of me, you take wrong turns. You head down aisles we had no intent in going down. We have a plan. We have a direction. I want you to be safe. The one thing you have to do is get behind me and follow. Friends, I mention this today because, well, maybe you're wrestling with who Jesus is and maybe you're wrestling with who you are in Jesus. But I bet you there's also a lot of us in this room that far too often just get out in front of Jesus. We have things that we're committed to. We have goals that we've set for ourselves. We have passions that we pursue. And sometimes we run out there and say, Jesus, come with me. Be where I am. And Jesus is saying, get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me. 
You know, I'll be honest, as I've thought about this too, I think a lot of the problems that we face internally in the church in America is that we're so confident in what we're doing, we often get ahead of Jesus. Because like the example here, what Jesus often does isn't just the obvious thing. It's not always the easy thing. Easy thing. And as he says, and I think in many ways he says to us today too, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's a great plan if you're talking about man's perspective. And Jesus is saying, friends, I'm doing something way bigger than that. Rock or stumbling block? Well, finally then, the last thing today is the question of just who or what do I identify with? Because in this moment, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I know that's not easy. It's not simple. It's not devoid of personal sacrifice. But Jesus says, this is my path. My path is to Calvary. My path is hanging on a cross and giving my life. And he says, your path will be similar. Sure, you can live your life. You can run out in front of me. You can do your thing, but you'll lose it. The invitation is to deny yourself, lose your life, and to follow him. You see, friends, because an unstoppable identity is one that is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It knows who he is. And it knows who Jesus says that you are. And when you deny yourself, lose your life and follow him, it's not that, oh man, what a bummer. I'm just dead now. Now last week I got to baptize a few young ladies <laughs> and they don't stay under the water. When we die with Jesus Christ, we raise with him to new life. And the question for you today, the invitation for you today is, are we willing to deny ourselves, to lose our lives, and to follow him? Maybe that's a first-time decision for you today. You're seeing who Jesus is, and you're saying yes to him. Maybe you realize today you've forgotten who you are, and you've been building your identity around the wrong things. Maybe today you have gotten out in front of Jesus, and you realize that you're just a stumbling block. Well, friends, I'm going to close this in prayer right now, but I want to invite you. I'm actually going to have, we have some prayer counselors going to be up here up front after the service. I'm going to come down here as well. If you need prayer, if you're struggling with these things, if you need to talk to somebody, just come up to the stage afterwards. We would love to meet with you, pray with you, walk alongside of you. But no matter what you do, don't leave here today without saying, Jesus, It's not about me. 
It's not about my life. It's about you and following you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can be here today. Thank you for your path to the cross and leading the way. Thank you that in losing our life, we don't just lose, but we find life to the fullest, a life that is not identified in our will and our passions and our desires, a life that is more and more becoming aligned to who you are and what you would have for us. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. It's so hard in 30 minutes. I, I imagine it was maybe easier to dig a little deeper on a three-day walk, but today we, we're together for 30 minutes and you're speaking to us. You're starting to scratch the surface. You're showing us where our identity's in the wrong place. You're showing us where we're getting out in front of you. And my prayer for all of us here today is that you just wouldn't stop doing business with us. You would allow us to see more fully who you are. You would remove the stumbling blocks that we're putting up. You would show us who you have created us to be. God, may we live in that freedom, walk in that freedom, and may you be glorified because of it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.